Hello and welcome to The Long Short, a new podcast brought to you by AIMA, the Alternative Investment Management Association, focusing on the very latest insights on hedge funds and private credit. My name is Tom Keogh. AIMA is the global representative of the alternative investment industry with around 2,000 corporate members spread across 60 countries. Of these, our fund manager members account for approximately $2.5 trillion in hedge fund and private credit assets. Each weekly episode of The Long Short will examine topical areas of interest from across the alternative investment universe, news, views, and analysis delivered by AIMA's global team, as well as a host of industry experts. So whether you're a hedge fund or a private credit industry veteran, a student of the industry, or just someone interested in learning more about hedge funds and private credit, this podcast will be your ideal companion to help navigate you through the long and short of this fascinating industry. Hello and welcome to episode 27 of The Long Short. This episode coincides with AIMA's inaugural digital assets conference, which took place in New York last Wednesday, May the 11th. The sellout conference hosted over 300 fund managers, including crypto fund managers, service providers, as well as featuring a keynote from SEC Commissioner Hester Peirce. The long short sat down with two speakers from our conference. In part one, we spoke with Eric Peters, founder and CEO of One River Asset Management and its subsidiary, One River Digital Assets Management, and keynote speaker at the AIMA conference. Eric described what inspired the launch of One River Digital in 2020, why he believes the trend of hedge fund managers launching crypto funds of products will continue, his outlook for digital assets, including his views as to what will happen regarding regulation for this sector, and the next steps in institutionalization for digital assets. And of course, all this happened in a week which shook cryptocurrencies, according to some market observers, as Bitcoin lost almost a quarter of its value not to mention much steeper declines in other coins. Therefore, we were delighted to then speak to Alex Boti, Head of Client and Portfolio Solutions at Runa Digital Asset. In addition to offering her key takeaways from the conference, she gave her views on the volatility seen across cryptocurrencies over the week, whether she thought Bitcoin made for a good inflation hedge, and what investors should think about when incorporating digital assets into their portfolio. So enough talking from us, let's get straight into it, starting with an excellent conversation with Eric Peters of One River Asset Management. We hope you enjoy the show. Eric, welcome to The Long Short, and many thanks for taking the time to speak to us today. Great. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, Drew. Uh, So, Eric, you have a long and distinguished career as a global macro investor. So what then inspired the launch of your subsidiary business, One River Digital, in 2020? Well, I, I viewed uh, digital as uh, an extension of macro. Really, um, we had uh, we had spent um, really kind of the couple of years leading up to the pandemic, anticipating a, a major policy shift away from purely kind of monetary policy dominance to something that involved a very aggressive fiscal uh, impulse, and so we felt that. Um, while central bankers were crying out for more help from politicians to actually spend money, um, we felt that they inevitably would uh, th- that that call would inevitably be answered and it would happen in the next recession. And when that happened, we'd see very aggressive uh, fiscal policy uh, supported by monetary policy. Um, what we had not anticipated was that we would get a catalyst like uh, like COVID, which proved to be such a powerful catalyst um, that we ended up with uh, a couple of years running of 15% deficits out of the U.S., um, more or less fully funded by the Fed. So um, 
when when we saw that um, we were very well positioned, our investors did did well across the strategies that we that we currently run. Um, but we're always on the hunt for uh, interesting strategies to express the themes that we have high conviction in. And monetary debasement was one of those themes. And uh, digital assets seemed a unique way of playing that. And this notion of um, digital uh, digital scarcity is, is is kind of almost seems like an oxymoron. Uh, but we felt it was poorly understood, um, and uh, and that buying these assets would prove to be a very valuable uh, uh, addition to a portfolio. And it seems that there's a fairly a healthy pipeline of traditional or, or legacy hedge fund managers that are uh, following your lead and, and exploring and, and launching crypto funds and products to diversify and, and have some exposure to uh, a new value creation ecosystem. Do you expect this trend to continue at, at its current velocity? And, and for those that do transition, how do they compare when it comes to the sophistication or, or the aptitude of, of native crypto hedge funds? Yeah, it's, that's a good question. I, I, um, I think we have seen a, a very strong move into this, uh, this new asset class by hedge funds uh, well in advance of the, the real institutional money. So the, the big asset owners of the world, I think that's going to start coming. Um, as that does, I, I think naturally we'll see, uh, we'll see more, more hedge funds, more asset managers entering the space. Uh, we seem to have announcements week by week of that being the case. Um, and then if you think about it over the, the longer term, uh, our expectation, and I think, honestly, I think it's just an inevitability. I think that all assets will ultimately become tokenized. And so what that means is that any asset manager will become a, a digital asset manager. Um, so I, I so I think the the world of digital asset management and asset management will converge over the next decade. And so much in the way that during the dot-com period, a, a lot of incumbent uh, businesses uh, added dot-com to their, to their name. Uh, and then there were you know firms that truly were dot-com. And, and now we don't really talk about any firms as being a dot-com firms. I think the same thing will happen in asset management, really. So right now we have digital asset managers. We're a digital asset manager. We're also an alternative asset manager. Um, I suspect in a decade, we won't really be be using those those terms. We'll just be asset managers, but everything will be tokenized, meaning equities will become tokenized, bonds will become tokenized, commodities, all sorts of derivatives will be delivered in tokenized form, uh, real estate as well. And um, uh, yeah, and so that's, that's what I see coming. And so I think it's very smart for all asset managers to be moving this space um, uh, to, you know, to be slow to that, uh, that, that new framework, I think will, will prove to be a strategic mistake for, for any asset manager. And in episode 11 of the long short, we, we discussed the outlook for crypto assets over the coming 12 months. And, and last year, all the talk was about what well, Bitcoin. Um, and this year, we've seen a lot of conversation around the merits of Ethereum and, and Solano. So what do you think then is likely to be the currency, the cryptocurrency that is, that everyone is going to be talking about 12 months from now? Hmm. Um, it's always risky business. I'll, I'll take the, uh, I, I think the safe answer, but I think it, it's the right answer, is that uh, it's perhaps not as interesting as you might, as you might want. But I, I think that we'll really be talking about Bitcoin and Ethereum in 12 months. Um, 
uh, there clearly are going to be all sorts of additional assets that uh, that become important. I, I suspect Solana will, will continue to be one of them, um, and I think that uh, I think that these these and a growing list of assets w will be interesting and will be important to the development of this whole space. But Bitcoin and Ethereum are are different assets, and I think that they are foundational to the development in this whole space, and. Uh, I think this next year, what we're going to find is that uh, we will have gotten through what will prove to be a very bumpy um, uh, process of Fed rate hikes and, and it, at least an attempt at policy normalization. That's proving to be challenging for all assets, including digital assets, understandably. Um, it has more or less always been the case that when, uh, when the central bank tightens financial conditions, um, financial assets and, and assets just broadly struggle in that environment. I think over the next year, what we'll find is uh, we will have gotten to the other side of that process. And I think digital assets are going to do extremely well. And um, the use cases of Ethereum will, uh, will become more manifest, more obvious to investors. We're actually involved in, in, in building out some um, financial infrastructure um, that that uses Ethereum. So I, we kind of have a, a glimpse of some of the important things that are coming down, um, uh, coming down the pipe. And, um, and then I think in the case of Bitcoin, I think once the fed pivots, I think it'll be very, it'll, it'll be very apparent that this period of, uh, monetary debasement is, is not over. I think it's a policy choice that, that our politicians and policymakers have made. Um, and, and so while we're tightening financial conditions, I think it's a difficult environment, but once we get to the other side of that, I think, uh, I think these assets are going to go up a long way. And, uh, and, and so we'll be talking about the dominant assets, you know, again. It's interesting. You mentioned sort of the, the transitional phase that we're going through at the moment, because if you think about, I mean, there's no such thing as a, as a boring time in digital assets, but if you think about where we are now, as opposed to the types of conversations we were having, uh, last year before the inflation conversation really kicked off. We look at some of the, the sort of macroeconomic environments now. So high inflation, obviously high interest rates coming right alongside that. And what we're seeing is digital assets operating in a somewhat high interest rate environment or high inflationary environment. And, and as that's going to continue to ramp up, the, that question that has, has hovered around for a long time of how digital assets will respond is sort of somewhat getting an answer. But how do you see the asset class developing and in terms of the conversation when it comes to dealing with uh, using cryptocurrencies as a hedge against inflation or sort of other macro conditions? Yeah, it, you know, it's it's interesting. Um, maybe I've spent too many years trading markets. I, I think markets... Uh, Markets anticipate events. Markets so therefore, when you think about when you think about assets that are inflation hedges, for instance, uh, I think the right way to think about them is the assets that you want to own should anticipate a period of inflation, as opposed to assets should perform extremely well when you're seeing your highest inflation prints. So, for instance. Um, We've already seen, and there's not a lot of talk about this in, in, the, in the markets or on the news right now, but I mean, we've already seen uh, inflation-sensitive markets rolling over. So, you know, one-year break-evens in the U.S. 
they peaked you know a month and a half ago at let's say six and a quarter percent they're five ish percent right now two years peaked at around five percent they're now around four percent so we're starting to see actual inflation markets roll off um even as people are talking about in inflation being extremely high i think inflation will remain high this decade and will be very volatile and so i think digital assets there are a number of really important drivers for them. One is a kind of a monetary debasement driver of their valuation. Another is the technology. Um, and, and therefore, I think that because we're, we're in a high, high inflationary, albeit a volatile one this decade, we will see volatility in these asset prices. But underlying them, we'll see you know, the growing importance of their, of their use, use cases in the technology. And that, you know, that will help maintain a bid under these assets through that period of time. But if you think about the inflation that we're now kind of, that we've now seen and has already crested, at least for this part of the cycle, digital assets had a huge run up well in advance of that. And so that's, so when I think about have these assets provided an inflationary hedge, I think that they, they have. Um, and like most, most hedges have done a good job of anticipating what, what has now manifesting, if that makes sense. And Eric, in the in the broader digital asset space, there has been a lot of noise around regulatory oversight mm-hmm. um, of the digital asset products and the service providers, particularly in the U.S. So, do you see regulators becoming more open to digital assets this year? I do. Yeah, I think the um, I think that the executive order, uh, Biden's executive order in March, was just uh, extremely important. Um, we have a very complex regulatory system here in in the U.S. Certainly, relative to other jurisdiction, jurisdictions, um, just we have a lot of regulators, and uh, you know, and we and we have states. We've got there's a lot going on, and so I think it was extremely important signaling for. Um, for Biden to come out and issue that executive order because essentially what he said was, you all need to start figuring this stuff out and you need to start talking and we need, we need an answer that is not going to restrain innovation in us, in the U S and U S financial services. And, um, that's something that we've advocated, uh, strongly as has, uh, you know, the head of our advisory council, Jay Clayton, the former SEC chair, uh, and he and our advisory Council and and my firm have worked uh, uh, closely in in advocating for a, a thoughtful, sensible regulatory foundation upon which the private sector can can build upon these innovative technologies. And so I think that that's that's starting. What we're also seeing is we're seeing other jurisdictions. You know, UK has come out uh, strongly advocating for. Um, uh, you know, for innovation in this space, that's a very different position from the one that they took, by the way, a year, year and a half ago. So what we're going to start seeing, and we are seeing unfold right now is I think more competition in different jurisdictions globally, um, by regulators and by governments. And that's a great dynamic when people, when, when countries start competing to try to make sure that they don't miss out on innovation and or can lead in, in innovation. That, that's a, a good backdrop. Doesn't mean that all activities will be approved. Of course, that's not the case. I think that we're gonna see you know, material regulation around DeFi this year. I think we'll, we'll see uh, an increasing amount of clarity this year. I don't think things will become perfectly clear, but the, the you know, direction of travel is, is I think uh, now pretty evident and we're moving toward an environment where 
we will get more clarity and these assets will be, um, will be allowed to be integrated into the mainstream financial, uh, uh, industry. And, and those are all good things. And of, of course, uh, no one truly knows the mind of, of regular regulators or, or policymakers, but you, you know, you mentioned that the UK has somewhat shifted, uh, direction in terms of its views on, uh, the digital asset market. And, and we're seeing that in other jurisdictions as well. Do you feel that that's come from, uh, a certain threshold being met when it comes to the industry is not sort of a flash in the pan. A lot of people are very skeptical to begin with. We can't necessarily point to administrative change or something in the UK that would have led to a significant change of direction. So is it just uh, a growing appreciation, more sophistication? Is that really what's underpinning this or is it something else? I think that's right, Drew. I, I, look, um, I've thought a lot about why, why have so many actually really smart asset managers, investors been so slow in this space? And, and it, it really is true that they have, um, you know, this whole market has been led by retail, which is kind of interesting because it, it often is not the case. Right. And so, and why have regulators been left so far behind? I think it's because we had this new technology, which was Bitcoin and the early adopters were you know, more or less um, very libertarian minded people, almost anarchist type people. Um, they're certainly and, and the, the nature of the technology in the in the uh, initial stages anyway, um, lent itself to certain types of illicit activities. And so it, 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 it kind of attracted a whole bunch of bad actors and, and it got a, a bad rap. And I think as a result, a lot of the more say serious people is probably the wrong term, but I'll just use it. So the, you know, the, the regulators and, and maybe the, the, the larger investors and, and asset owners, um, just shied away from it for a long period of time. I think what's starting to happen now is there's a growing recognition that these technologies allow for much more efficient, uh, execution, um, real time settlement, things that actually, uh, take an antiquated, uh, trading and settlement system in rails and turn into something that's more efficient, um, allows for, um, greater transparency in the transactions and holdings allows, and all of those things incidentally, um, I think promote financial stability. And so we've seen incidents, um, in 2008, in March of 2020, where certain markets broke down. Um, and a big reason that, and there've been other incidents as well, but a big reason is that, um, settlements are just really delayed and things don't go through and people don't know what, you know, what their position is as a result of that. These technologies really address these things and they allow for a real decline in the cost of cross-border trades and settlement, all those things. And so I think as it's taken, it's because of how Bitcoin started, it's just taken, um, the, the more, um, you know, substantial financial actors and regulators time to just take it seriously. And now that they they've looked at it, they 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 recognize that this is this is real. And by the way, I, I think it's helped that the Chinese have introduced their CBDC because it's forced governments to, to have to reckon with the notion that if China's right, these technologies are really important and we have done nothing, then maybe we're at a competitive disadvantage and in a, in a world that is becoming more hostile. That's just something that's unacceptable. So 
Um, and, and, you know, and again, that's why you get something like this, um, this uh, executive order. And, and um, there have been some notable Bitcoin investors emerge over the past 12 months, and, and your own firm has made a significant investment too in this area. But what are you hearing then about the institutional investor appetite for crypto assets? Are we seeing an institutionalization of the industry? Is it started? Are we midstream? Yeah, it's it's. Uh, uh, I think it's been slower than expected, and yet this year it's starting in earnest. And so there, there are all sorts of there are all sorts of impediments to it that that haven't existed in other markets. So one of the things that um, uh, that this reminds me of a bit is when uh, this notion of the BRICS, so um, Brazil, Russia, India, uh, and, and China became a, a big investment theme or thesis um, years ago. And, you know, when that happened, I think it, I think a lot of, a lot of institutional investors all over the world thought about that thesis and it either made sense or didn't make sense to them. It ultimately made sense to a lot of them. And what they did when they decided to invest in those countries is they, they picked up the phone, they called their counterparties and they said, go buy me a bunch of, you know, Brazilian, um, Russia and, India and China stocks, and the entire infrastructure was built for them to do it. And it was a relatively easy transaction. It fit within all of their risk systems, more or less. And, um, and so it was a reasonably easy thing to do. In this case, we, we have an investment thesis that's, I think, uh, more important than that one and ultimately will be bigger, but they haven't had the, they haven't had the custody, um, relationship set up. They don't have the risk system set up. The assets are very, you know, they're, they're poorly understood by a lot of the people, particularly the older people that tend to sit on the uh, investment boards for large pensions. And so there's been a much greater need to educate and then figure out what are the right access, um, uh, access points, how we, who are we gonna do this with, et cetera, et cetera. A year ago, I expected there to be a faster move into this, but this year is actually the year where what you see is um, you see all these dogs popping up, uh, digital asset working groups, and uh, you know you guys have one, and um, and so what you're seeing is you're seeing groups of people and and most of if not all of the largest asset managers forming these groups. They're usually led by someone who's extremely knowledgeable. That person is the educator within. Uh, with, within the organization and uh, and the allocations uh, are actually beginning this year. It's exciting. And if we could just dwell on this question of geography for a moment longer, um, you know, you, you've, you've mentioned China, we've mentioned sort of a few other markets outside the US, which, which we're always keen not to sort of dwell too much on, on the major markets. Are there any other key trends when it comes to uh, interest in digital assets from institutional investors or even sovereign wealth funds that are slightly ahead of the curve or anyone that's really uh, identified this as a, as a as a good investment early on you, you mentioned there's been some feed dragging elsewhere i'd say that the uh that the us is is leading in this space and and if i were to identify a state i would say that texas uh within the us is is the leader uh, in terms of um in terms of doing a lot of work and um, and making allocations and and or likely to make 
earlier allocations than than others. Um, I'd say behind the U.S. would be Canada. Um, the Canadian pensions they have always tended. You know, Canada's pension system is rather different from the U.S. in terms of its structure. Um, they're very large pools of capital. Um, those the, and they they tend to have teams within uh, who are who are pretty aggressive investors relative to uh, relative to others and not terribly dependent on on consultants as well. Um, so we've had lots of discussions with with big Canadian plans and they have you know they have their own dogs. Um, the Australians are are quite interested, but I mean the interest really is global. Um, just in the last in the last uh, couple of weeks, I've met with two of the major sovereign wealth funds in the world, and uh, uh, they're very interested in in these assets, in these technologies, in the infrastructure. One of the themes that that I see clearly is that uh, is that all these big investors want to invest in picks and shovels because they know that that these technologies are going to form the the infrastructure for the future of finance and that and and it's a lot easier for them just because it kind of fits with their investment style it, it fits with their um their their tolerance for volatility they can wrap their it's easier for more people within their organizations to wrap their heads around an infrastructure type investment rather than let, let why don't we go out and buy an 80 vol instrument or 100 vol instrument that could theoretically you know, declined by 25% uh, in the month after we've invested in it. That's, you know, that's, there's just a, it's just a high bar. By the way, over the course of my career, I have seen that's usually the hardest investments are the best ones. So I think that we're actually at a point where a lot of the infrastructure is probably richly priced right now. I, I think people investing in infrastructure in this, in this space will make money um, and probably a lot of money over time. Uh, but I think that these assets these assets are going to go up, I believe, a long way over the next decade, and they're the things that are hardest for the large institutions to touch. So I think that they're going to they're going to kind of tiptoe their way into those markets, but those markets will go up a lot. And so, you know, if we have the same conversation in a decade, I think we'll see all these institutions with material allocations to these assets. I think the the, the volatility of these assets will come down over that time, but it'll be because they're actually quite a bit higher in price, and there's just more institutional uh, ownership of them. And aside from cryptocurrencies, you know, digital asset universe is also expanding into, you've mentioned uh, DeFi strategies, but also NFTs. Um, so what's catching your team's interest these days? We haven't, I, I, I'm, I think NFTs are incredibly important. Um, we, haven't, we haven't allocated capital specifically to particular NFTs, We're kind of leaving that to others. There, we, We've got plenty on our plate that we think is, important and interesting uh and uh kind of leaving it to other people right now to to figure out which nft to buy but i think that that i think that the nf the the technology behind nfts and the adoption is super interesting and i think that we'll look back in 25 years and say you know nfts change an awful lot of things in the world it changed the way people are compensated for work i think um, for their work, you know, their, their time and effort and, and talent. Um, and, and they'll, they'll be used for all sorts of other things as well that are just very practical. Um, so 
you know, really interesting space, but we have, we haven't developed, uh, investment products there. We're, we're more focused on access products to the, the core assets that we think are important. We've, um, we've developed the leading institutional, uh, index product in this space for our clients. Um, we're doing really interesting things in the credit markets in this space. We've developed a, um, uh, an income product and we are, we're working on uh, what, what is just going to be an, an excellent uh, alpha product in this space. Um, but yeah, none of those things are, are touching NFTs directly. And before we let you go, one of the reasons we wanted to speak to you is because you are the keynote at AIMA's first dedicated digital asset event this week. The event was sold out and there is a long wait list for people trying to get last minute tickets. So there'll be a lot of people out there. Uh, who will miss out on hearing from you and all the other great speakers we have lined up. So for everyone who wasn't there, what are the key takeaways from your talk? <laughs> uh, yeah, look, I, I, I think that the themes that, uh, the themes that we're seeing this year really have to do around what's going on with the Fed and the tightening of financial conditions and how is that reverberating through these assets? Um, it's pretty clear that it, like with all financial assets, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's, you know, it's challenging. Um, and, and I think the important question is to try because as investors were, we're kind of intent, you know, we, we should be looking for what, what's happening in the future. I think that the, um, the key takeaway certainly from, from me is that once we get through this, um, this tightening cycle or even midway through, I think these assets are gonna do very well. Um, and then the other, the other big takeaway is what's happening with, um, with regulation in this space. And, uh, you know, we, we chat a little bit about the importance of this executive order. Um, what we've seen that be a catalyst with the large institutions that we speak with, um, who have, I, I wouldn't say it's a full green light, but it's more or less a green light, um, that, that they, they need to take this whole space very seriously. And then you start doing things there, um, ultimately. So. Those are the, the two, you know, the two important things. Thank you for your time. That was an incredibly insightful discussion. I know Tom and I were really sorry not to be in New York this time around. So this was a very welcome alternative. Thank you so much. True. Thanks so much. And Tom, thank you. It's, it's been great. Thank you, Eric. All right. Thank you. The AMA Next Generation Manager Forum 2022 returns in person for its ninth year on Thursday the 26th of May at the Sofitel London St. James Hotel. The forum provides a platform for the exchange of ideas and the development of peer networking for senior individuals and emerging alternative asset management businesses. Throughout the afternoon, discussions will focus on how to keep on top of regulatory requirements, digitalization to streamline and costs, asset raising, and speakers will share practical ideas and guidance on how to successfully start and manage an alternative asset management firm. Register today on the AIMA website to hear the discussions, network with peers, and to join the evening drinks reception. We hope to see you there. And joining us now is Alex Bodie, Head of Client and Portfolio Solutions at Runa Digital Assets. Alex, you are very welcome to Long Short. Thank you so much for having me, Tom and Drew. Very excited to be here. So, Alex, you're fresh from the AIMA Digital Assets Conference. Uh, can we ask you, what are your key takeaways from the day? Absolutely. Well, um, first of all, uh, the conference was uh, just a great, great use of time. Very well done. Um, the content was fantastic. Met a lot of r really interesting people. 
service providers, other asset managers, institutional asset allocators. So the quality of people was very high caliber. Um, I would say key takeaways first is that it was, you know, obviously difficult to ignore the recent market uh, conditions um, it, during the conference. Markets, crypto markets were crashing. UST was was collapsing and, and depegging. So there's a lot of talk about that, whether there was going to be any contagion risk, the future of, of stable coins um, and regulation. The second is there there were you know some great discussions among the institutional asset allocators, and it, it seems like they vary a lot in their journey and their their approach to digital assets. Most appear to be starting with with venture capital, but are cautious at the asset levels that have been raised uh, you know last year and more recently in venture capital. I think according to PitchBook, twenty eight point four billion dollars in deal value in twenty twenty one versus only five or so billion in 2020. And I think 2022 is on pace to exceed 2021. And some also expressed, in addition to VC, some directional exposure via liquid liquid funds. And then finally, um, great conversations around gaming and identity. This is an area that we're really excited about, it, it, you know, a growth area that we actively look at. So this is particularly interesting to me. Um, the goal of, you know, play to earn games like an Axie Infinity, you know, not really to, to maximize token value, but um, users should be incentivized by the value of the game and not these speculative loops. The game should be fun and, and there should be some non-economic value to users in addition to strong tokenomics. So some really, really great discussions overall across a, a variety of topics. Alex, you've written several pieces on how Bitcoin tends to perform well when macro markets are trending in one direction or another, but tend to perform poorly when macro markets are a choppy or directionless. What are your views on, on the volatility seen in crypto markets this week? And does it support this thesis? Yeah, that, that was actually um, research I, I conducted for, for my prior firm. And the idea, kind of the, the whole concept behind that was to see whether Bitcoin's risk could be explained by traditional uh, risk models. And so the multi-factor risk model that we used for that analysis included macro factors like equity risk, duration, duration risk, uh, commodities risk, as well as these long, short style factors, one of which was trend following, which I think you're talking about here. And, you know, there's long, short value, uh, value investing, momentum investing in stocks. This, this model didn't have any crypto specific uh, risk factors in it. And the primary conclusion was that 90% plus of Bitcoin's risk was, was unexplained. However, there were some statistically significant uh, factor relationships that explained a small amount of risk and trend following was was one of them. That trend following factor goes long and short, various asset classes across equities, fixed income, currencies, and commodities. There were, again, no digital assets. Um, and it's all based on going long and short, but, you know, based on price trends, past price trends. So we saw that Bitcoin had a statistically significant positive relationship with this factor. And so what I interpreted that to mean is that Bitcoin has historically performed well when ma traditional macro markets are trending, like you said, in one direction or another, that could be up or down. And it struggles when markets are, are choppy and directionless. And I remember we had looked into this uh, relationship by breaking down the trend following factor into its four different asset classes and found that Bitcoin sensitivity was, was strongest to trends in equity markets. So I, I don't know how that relationship has statistically changed more recently. That, that paper was written about a year ago, but anecdotally, like, Equity markets have been fairly choppy and, and directionless this this year. O overall, of course, the last week, uh, there's been a little bit more direction. And that hasn't been the best environment for Bitcoin and other digital asset assets, 
the Bitcoin itself was down, you know, double digits year to date, even before this most recent um, downturn. And Alex, I mean, you've alluded to it already, but it has been a challenging period for for cryptocurrency this week. And indeed, if you look at cryptocurrency year to date, particularly Bitcoin, and the argument made earlier in the year was, um, particularly in, in the increasing inflationary environment that we were seeing, is that Bitcoin could be somewhat of an inflation hedge. Do you think that argument is somewhat flawed now? Yeah, I think it's I, I think it's a good a good question and a good point. I, the last major inflation period is in the 1970s, early 1980s. So when people do these historical inflation studies, they look back to see how assets performed during those time periods. But of course, crypto didn't exist back then. Um, crypto grew up during this period of quantitative easing and easy money. Um, and many, of course, have feared that this type of expansive monetary and fiscal policy would lead to a debasement of, of fiat currency. Um, and yeah, we have seen these higher inflation prints, you know, over the past year or so. I mean, on Thursday, for example, CPI was at 8.3% on an annual basis and Bitcoin and other digital assets are not are not doing so well. So I guess you could look at those two facts and you could say that crypto, you know, isn't serving as an effective inflation hedge. But this was actually something that was discussed a little bit at the conference is that these markets are anticipatory. They're they're looking ahead. And so instead of, of looking at past CPI prints, which are, you know, delayed, uh, you can look at the relationship between Bitcoin returns or really any other digital assets returns and changes in inflation break-evens, which represent expected inflation derived from uh, nominal and inflation-linked government bonds. And just looking back historically, that relationship, um, the correlation was, was around 9%, and it was statistically significant. And more recently, I just actually checked this yesterday, the correlation is, is kind of right around that long-term average. Um, so that's just kind of the the kind of qu- the, the quantitative analysis. But I think the principles behind Bitcoin serving as an inflation hedge to us are still very real over the over a longer term horizon. You know, it's produced much higher returns than the annual inflation numbers we're seeing today. Historically, Bitcoin has. It has this predictable monetary policy. You know, you know how, how much Bitcoin is going to be minted. There's, or sorry, uh, you know, put into the, the supply. There's also this fixed supply of 21 million. And I think most importantly, the, the network itself is meaningfully decentralized. So the network is kind of out of control of a centralized authority to, to come in and, and change um, some of these you know, predictable monetary policy, basically, of Bitcoin. So I think over the long term, we still think it's a great inflation hedge, but over the, the shorter term, um, yeah, definitely seeing Bitcoin struggling a little bit with these, these high CPI. Yeah, rates. one certainty to keep an eye on, as you say, as we expand that time series and and follow the fortunes of bitcoin thank you yeah and just before we we let you off the hook regarding this week's activity there's been a lot of talk around this concept of contagion within the digital asset sector and, and how that might may strain to traditional finance just just for our listeners who may be looking at the headlines uh this week and and hearing this maybe for the first time could you just help us uh, understand a little bit how uh, you know the self in, in Bitcoin has actually potentially been triggered by an entirely separate asset or an entirely separate token, and and, and what that really means about what, what we've learned about the evolution of the space today compared to maybe five years ago. Yeah, so I guess um, two things there is one the relationship between 
digital assets and you know traditional markets i've seen you know th- these figures of, of bitcoin becoming extremely correlated with the nasdaq for example over shorter time periods if you look rolling correlations going back f- much further um you see positive and negative you know over time but right now kind of we're at record levels and I think one of uh, the macro is really, really what's been driving um, digital assets. The fundamentals are still very strong for a lot of these projects and and networks. Um, but I think, uh, you know, you have this higher you know inflation, you have risk of, of recession. And so that's going to put pressure on, on risk assets and Bitcoin and, and digital assets, I think, fall into that category. The second point is, um, I think, contagion within digital assets. You had the, the fall and the collapse of, of UST. Uh, which is an algorithmic uh, stablecoin this week. Um, and there were a lot of questions on how that would impact other parts of the ecosystem, especially because Bitcoin were, you know, were reserved supporting uh, supporting the peg. And I think Bitcoin held in held in pretty, pretty well. Um, I, I think overall, digital assets are still relatively new and there, there's experimentation and I think algorithmic stable coins are an example of that. Some of these innovations are, are going to fail, but at the end of the day, I think the focus should be building real projects that are delivering, you know, real use cases to end users, users and are dependent on these short-term incentives uh, to keep, to keep going. And I think finally, there's going to be regulation. I think a lot of people are waiting for that. And that regulatory clarity, I think, overall will be helpful to our industry. I think it'll bring in more institutional players um, that are kind of waiting for that clarity before entering. Well, that's a good segue to to actually think about you know deinstitutional investor angle here. And given your experience working in the various risk management roles, and indeed your present role working at Runa, and 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 that investment firm focuses primarily on digital assets. So what then should an investor be thinking about when incorporating digital assets in this portfolio? So yeah, Runa, Runa is exclusively focused on, on digital assets. Um, most of the people at Runa, like myself, came over from uh, what we call you know, TradFi. Um, and I think incorporating it in, into a bro- broader portfolio is understanding kind of the relationships, obviously, between everything else that, that you already own. Um, and the biggest thing I think is is just the volatility of this asset class. It is extremely volatile. And just to put some numbers around this, the volatility of Bitcoin and Ethereum, the two largest digital assets by market cap, are you know around 80% and 110% annualized. You compare that to stocks and bonds, which are more around like 20% and 5% respectively. And there really aren't, that I know of, any off-the-shelf you know, crypto specific risk models or systems um, yet that you can use for this asset class, like they, you know, like they exist for, for traditional markets. And so I think when it comes to managing and understanding that volatility, um, there needs to be a crypto specific kind of risk, risk model, because the existing ones don't, don't really work. Like what I was saying before, Bitcoin, 90% plus of the risk is unexplained when you run it through traditional risk systems. So um, I think just kind of, more more innovation on that on that side to un, to better understand the volatility um, that investors are taking when investing in this asset class. And Alex, you'll have to forgive the slightly impossible question here, but we try not to uh, limit a conversation around digital assets to just cryptocurrencies. Although uh, maybe our listeners will forgive us this week of all weeks. But just turning to to the much broader universe that's out there, 
can, if at all possible, can you just summarize uh, the the general level of appetite you're seeing among investors for digital assets? I know, for example, maybe it'd be fair to say that some of the NFT market may have come off the boil, but I know other areas are emerging just as fast to take the place and, and maybe capture that, that piece of the pie. If at all possible, can you summarize that? Yeah, and I'll, I'll say that that's a great, great point, Drew, um, that I think a lot of people, w- when they think about digital assets, they immediately go to cryptocurrencies. Everything's a cryptocurrency. There is so much more to this this asset class than cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin. And I, I, I'm guilty of that. I spent a lot of time talking about Bitcoin so far on this podcast. But you have smart contract platforms and decentralized finance and metaverse and gaming. And there's a lot of uh, really interesting, we think, sectors in this space. When we're talking to investors that are, you know, seeking to access digital assets, we kind of describe this spectrum of how you can invest from venture capital, you know, early stage investments um, to these liquid token funds. Um, you know, these might be more like mar- uh, market neutral arbitrage or something like us that's directional, um, long primarily uh, diversified across sectors. Then you get into these like single asset liquid funds that could be like a grayscale or a Bitcoin futures ETF. And then all the way to public equities um, that are tied to this ecosystem, like a Coinbase or you know, some of the publicly trading mining companies. A lot of the institutions that kind of mentioned this earlier that we've spoken to have accessed crypto through through venture. I think it fits really well in the innovation early stage tech allocations. Um, on the liquid side, uh, a lot of interest in that market neutral arbitrage and yield, you know, yield farming strategies. These are great, but they're, they're not giving you that exposure to the asymmetric upside of the entire asset class. We at Runa believe we're in this like multi-decade transition to decentralized networks and blockchain enabled business models. And with that comes an enormous investment opportunity. So you kind of, you're able to get that in this long biased actively managed, you know, liquid token fund. Um, But yeah, I think, I think institutions and and investors are really at different stages right now of their crypto journeys and um, figuring out kind of where they want to invest along that, along that spectrum. Well, I'm I'm very sad to say that unfortunately we, this is all we have time for today. I feel like we've just scratched the surface of, what's going on in the universe today. And I think all that's left is to thank you very much for attending the AMA's inaugural digital asset event. Uh, I can almost say with complete certainty that there will be another one, uh, bigger and larger. The queues out the door was, was the, the note that we received on the day. So uh, no doubt we'll have another, another opportunity to speak again. But thank you so much for your time. Thank you both. Appreciate it. The Long Short is brought to you by AIMA, the Alternative Investment Management Association, the global representative for the alternative investment industry. As always, you can get the latest episodes by subscribing to The Long Short on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts, or by streaming episodes directly from our website, AIMA.org. Thanks for listening.